Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. Powerful stories exist about people here in New Haven. Every day, civic leaders, communities, and organizations come together to tackle poverty and injustice in the city. Some people create urban resilience through food. Through the Connecticut Center for Arts and Technology, known as CONCAT, founder and CEO Eric Clemens has become one such leader. Eric joined us last week on campus as a guest to celebrate the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He and CONCAT's journey connect food, equity, art, and urban development in ways you might not imagine, all for the sake of building a better New Haven. Here's Eric with podcast manager Amy Jean. You're greatly involved in promoting local economic well-being by empowering marginalized communities. What drives you in your work? I think a big driver for me in my work was the fact that I was poor and was able to overcome the conditions and symptoms and suffering of poverty. And I've always kind of promised to myself that if, in fact, I would kind of quote unquote make it, that I would help those folks who especially look like me who are living in the condition I was able to overcome. And so a lot of the work that I do, if we ball all the programs up, it is an aggressive attempt to address poverty. And I think poverty is the civil rights issue of our time. I really do. And so the thrust of my being is to really address those issues um, surrounding poverty. That's what keeps me up at night, but that's what wakes me up in the morning. Yeah. When, so when you first started your career, like, did you know that was what you wanted to do? Yes. You know, in, in my, you know, I kind of took a circuitous route to where, yeah. where I am now. Yeah. I grew up, again, as I said, very poor in the project, single-parented by my mom. Um, I had a brother, a younger brother who was shot and killed when he was 18, and I have an older sister. And, you know, I didn't do well in school, although I felt myself to be very kind of smart. I kind of knew things. But I was really kind of uh, contending with things that had nothing to do with school. And so I kind of found jobs here and there. And I have no idea how I I got out of high school. No idea. Because I didn't do well in high school. And kind of meandered until I found a job at the Postal Service. And I worked at the United States Postal Service as a mail sorter. Mm -hmm. And I did that for... 12 years and around the 12th year, for whatever reason, Amy, I started thinking about my contribution to the world. What have I done that would allow my, my wife and children to be proud of me? And to my standards, I had really done nothing, although I had a very noble job and, and made a pretty good living. And I went to school for two reasons. One, I wanted to educate myself. Two, I wanted to learn how to FAFSA worked. So when my, our daughters yeah. <laughs> we're going to college, like we wouldn't be intimidated by it, right? right and so, right. and it sounds funny, but it's, it's a real thing, you know? And so um, I did that. And while in school, you know, I'm this 34, 35 year old guy in undergrad, but realized that a lot of the things that were in my head, mm-hmm. I was finding a language now, I was acquiring a language to talk about the things that have been in my head for 20 years. And this was more of an academic language. And so, I went to school and, and kind of realized that I had some ability and I, and I was incredibly focused because I was this older guy in school, you know, yeah. 
And so I finished school and um, finished undergrad. And then, of course, I had some momentum and some real confidence within the academic sphere. And I said, all right, well, I'll go to graduate school. And I was going to go to law school because I, I was always thinking about the world and especially the communities that I grew up in from a kind of political, social and faith lenses together, which to me kind of make up the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And my wife thought it wasn't a good idea to go to law school. And so I ended up going to to seminary and got a a graduate degree in theology and ethics because theology has law in it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, from there, I started kind of making a name for myself in community, doing the things that I always longed to do. And then um, things happened for me and to me to the point where um, I am where I am now. And I've I've been able to do and to be a part of some really incredible things, mostly centered around education, whether, you know, Ed Fellow at Aspen or State Board of Ed. And, you know, I have an honorary doctorate from Albertus Magnus. All these things are steeped in education. But it was really a decision to kind of make a contribution to the world that has allowed me to do some really incredible extra things. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a long way to say, you know, this, I went to kind of secure this non-traditional route and have experienced some success, but success really wasn't the reason. It's been the result. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to what you're focused on today. So a couple years ago, you founded the Connecticut Center for Mm -hmm. Arts and Technology, also known as CONCAT. Um, Can you tell us more about its origins, why you started it, and its current directions today? Yeah, so CONCAT is a replication uh, replication model of Bill Strickland's uh, Manchester Bidwell, kind of historic, iconic place in Pittsburgh, Connecticut. Bill Strickland being, to me, the preeminent social entrepreneur in this country. And so Bill's idea was to affect community through workforce development programs that were relevant to that geography and also arts after school programs. And so this idea of Bill's model coming to New Haven it was around 2008, 2009. I was running a larger nonprofit here in New Haven. And the idea came through the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven. Mm-hmm. And so you know, to galvanize some folks, one being my board chair now, his name is Carlton Highsmith. And these folks got together and kind of talked about this idea of Bill's model being living in New Haven. And once they kind of formed a group of people that would be a board of directors, they then had to look for a CEO and president, a founding CEO and president. They had heard about the work that I was doing here in New Haven at this other nonprofit organization and came to talk to me about the prospects of me kind of building and running CONCAT. And initially, I, you know, I wasn't interested because it, were, it was fraught with a lot of conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I told them no. And then they did a national search and they came back and asked me again. And I, made, I had a conversation with my wife and then also started reflecting on the dreams that I had of, of impacting people you know, in, a, in a greater way and being part of a national network. And so they came back, asked me again, and I said yes. Um, CONCAP programmatically is made up of kind of three things. One, workforce development, which we have two medical training programs, one in phlebotomy, the other in medical billing and coding. We chose those two programs because Yale New Haven Hospital being the largest employer in New Haven indicated to us from the beginning that they would need for the next 15 years phlebotomists and medical billers and coders. And so logically, we 
design training programs based on Yale New Haven Hospital's needs. So there is a job from our training to Yale. So there's a pathway to a job. Then I started thinking uh, more deeply about black men, especially uh, who were coming home from incarceration. And admittedly, I really hadn't given that much thought. And so, you know, what, what could we do that would allow men especially, because for whatever reason, men of color and men in general were not doing well in our medical training programs. I couldn't figure it out. And so we said, all right, what, what can we create that will allow these men um, and men of color especially to, to get a second chance on life? And so for whatever reason, culinary Mm. is a very forgiving thing as it relates to folks who have been incarcerated. And so we started thinking, you know, kind of thought about the feasibility of a culinary school, knowing that is the proliferation of restaurants in New Haven. So we built a culinary school downstairs from our initial space. And it's a 9,000 square foot building with up to 30% of the folks who are in that program are folks who have been incarcerated and also built a social enterprise, which is a 40-seat restaurant in our culinary school, which will allow our students to learn how to run a restaurant in front of the house. All the revenue that we make in that restaurant plows back into supporting our culinary school. Mm. So that's our adult training. Secondly, we have arts after school and arts summer programming for kids in New Haven and Hamden, where these kids study, um, have a STEAM program. In the summer, they studied Motown. Originally, from inception, our kids studied the Harlem Renaissance because I wanted our young people to really understand the history of Black people coming off the heels of slavery, migrating to a place called Harlem, New York, where they built their own community. So it's really learning history and community building. And so the kids studied that for five years during the summer, for five summers, and now they are studying Motown, where we are moving through the time continuum to Detroit, where this idea of community building is still alive. And so then we also have an entrepreneurship academy where we are training young high school students throughout the state. At this point, it started originally started with training high school students in New Haven. But because it was such a huge need of our young people to learn business principles and, and entrepreneurship mechanics, we said, all right, let's scale this effort statewide. And so now we have an entrepreneurship academy during the summer where there are high school students who come to us from Waterbury, Bridgeport, Hamden, New Haven, and Meriden. And some of those kids are, so we have a high school division and we also have a college division. And 10 of our college students who are in our program end up going to Budapest, Hungary to learn even more about international entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So kind of three legs of the stool now. We then started, um, I started thinking about what is the next iteration of impact, knowing that we have trained a critical mass of adults who are now seemingly more viable living in New Haven, who see life differently, right? Not just because they have a job, but they see possibilities and hope far beyond when they first engaged CONCAT. And so we Myself and my board chair created this thing called Concord, which is a economic development, social impact arm of our nonprofit, where we are now actively buying properties on Dixwell Avenue with the intention and hope mm -hmm. of building a place on this eight acre footprint where we'll build a 300 seat performing arts center 
We're going to build a uh, 15 restaurant food hall. We're building 150 to 170 units of housing. We're building 20 townhouses, a 50,000 square foot commercial building, also a gallery and a supermarket will live in that space oh, as wow. well. So we're building a space to bring dignity, beauty, and utility to a uh, swath of land and community that has been forgotten, in my opinion, that has no beauty and dignity at this point. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on now. Right. And again, that's an address to poverty. Like, how do we create an economic infrastructure in a community that has been impoverished for decades? So that's what I'm, I'm working on now. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have many questions, mm -hmm. but um, <laughs> um, questions about the first leg of CONCAT. So it seems very logical about how the culinary arts profession in CONCAT kind of emerged because you said it was a very forgiving profession. So I guess I wonder, what is the route that these formerly incarcerated men of color, do they stay and work at, I believe, is Orchid Cafe yeah. for um, great question. a long time after. Great question. So, great question for a lot of reasons. One, some do stay and work at Orchid Cafe, uh -huh. but because Concorp has been so successful at this point, we've created three businesses. One, we have Orchid. Uh -huh. We have Orchid on the Green, which is at the New Haven Library downtown. And we just opened a market called Petals Market, right, yeah, right. which is on Ashman Street, across the street from the police station, Yale Police Station. So those folks can go and work in those businesses. But again, because we did feasibility, like, would it be logical to build a culinary school? Would these folks have logical meaning? Would these folks, when they're finished our training, would they have a job? Mm -hmm, right. Given the amount of restaurants in New Haven. Absolutely. So the feasibility told us, yes, this would work. And so our students go to, I mean, we have students in the Union League. We have students at Zinc. We have students all over New Haven in the restaurants in New Haven. And we have students who are opening their own businesses, which oh, is really? the ideal situation. One namely who opened a vegan food truck right there on College Street. Yeah. Her name is Perea. Okay. And Perea is right there, right next to the green. Yeah. Mm. So check it out. All right. All right. I, I will. I'll look for it. So yeah. So, so that, was the, that was the idea. These folks leave our training, six-month training, very rigorous, comprehensive training, mm -hmm. and then they go to various places in and around New Haven. Mm. Yeah. It's about an 80% job placement. Oh, wow. That's yeah. very, very really high. Good. Yeah. And then my second question is about the education leg for students. Mm -hmm. It's very important to learn about your people's history. And I guess, how do you see the arts as central to that? You know, for me to witness from, you know, being the founder and looking at our young people produce art is them kind of having an idea and then that idea being actually on paper, right? Whether it be a painting, whether it be a digital design, whether it be a photograph, they had an idea that is now manifested and then hanging. So we have an art gallery as well. That idea is now hanging on a wall. And to be able to think and then actually produce that thing and finish something is a very powerful thing for our young people, especially. Not even to mention that it's actually hanging in an art gallery. Mm -hmm. And so we use art as a vehicle for academic achievement and to think about life differently and deeply. 
right? If I can look at something and get it into view and then take a picture of it, and then that picture now tells a million stories. But the, the beginning of it was I, I thought about it and I brought it into view. And you can kind of translate that to life for our young people, especially who aren't coming from affluent means, right? Mm -hmm. so these young people, for the most part, are struggling. And so, so that in and of itself is a lesson in life for them, mm -hmm. right? And it builds confidence mm -hmm. and it builds curiosity. And once you have curiosity and confidence, that to me, that is undergirded by trust. They are trusting in the process and trusting in the people who are directing them to do the things that they are doing, mm -hmm. which is a very different narrative outside of Comcat mm -hmm. in their communities. I think the arts delivers a, an aesthetic and a beauty that for the most part they wouldn't see, mm -hmm. right? And if something can deliver beauty, then it kind of dignifies who you are in some kind of strange way. What I failed to mention was the design of CONCAT. I wish you all have been there. Hopefully you'll be there one day. You'll come there one day. It's very intentional. A huge ingredient of our success is the design and how the place looks, right? It's open space, bright colors, natural sunlight wherever you, wherever you are walking, jazz being played, art on the wall, flowers all over the place, right? That, that we believe that these are ingredients that transform the minds of people who have been marginalized. If in fact that you feel good in the place that was built for you, then you can think differently about who you can be. And so this idea of beauty connected to dignity is huge for us, especially our young people. So I think the arts kind of provides an aesthetic and a beauty that allows or elicits dreams that our young people have. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. So I guess the space that you're creating and envisioning right now, I guess I'm just curious about what the design process is like. Like, who are oh, the people yeah. who get That's to participate? That's a great question. Yeah. So we, we just hired an architect and, and it was one of the four or five architects who designed the African-American History Museum in D.C. Oh, yeah. Cool. He's, he's, on, he's on board. He's part of our team. And we have a developer who is local. Uh, his name is Eve Joseph, and his partner is Jason Rudnick. And Peter Cook is the architect that I, I mentioned from HGA. And so what we're trying to build is a, it's an eight-acre footprint, and it's a plaza called Dixwell Plaza that is, for the most part, in disrepair and has been definitely neglected. Mm -hmm. And so the design idea is not to build a super block but build a space that is walkable and embracing to the community while at the same time, you know, using a lot of glass and adding amenities in that space that harken back to the incredible history of Dixwell community as it relates to jazz and arts. Mm -hmm. So we'll have an art gallery, we'll have a performing arts center and a museum for those purposes. And so it's a huge space that hopefully doesn't feel cumbersome and feels incredibly welcoming and walkable. And, and also a, a part of that is to hopefully engage downtown. You know, Yale is two, three blocks away from where we, are, we will be building. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, in my opinion, Yale students don't walk past Tropical Smoothie, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they don't. Mm -hmm. or, or Lake Place, I'll say. I'll give it another mm -hmm. 40 feet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we want 
And we hope that Dixwell community, New Hallville community, and the Yale community will at some point engage one another and really experience the best of, of each other. Right. But at the same time, admittedly, we want to bring beauty and dignity and utility to a black community that sorely needs it and deserves it. That is really the thrust of it. Mm. So it seems like you have a very active role in the New Haven community. So I guess, could you share some more thoughts about what your hopes are for the Yale New Haven relationship? Oh, good question. My relationship in, in terms of aspects with Yale, it's very limited. I, okay, you know. sure, sure. But I do believe that this city goes as far as its relationship is with Yale, right? If the relationship with Yale is not one of functionality and progression, then I think this city will be very limited in terms of its kind of living out its potential. And not because Yale is some kind of powerful institution that the city needs, but I just think having grown up in Norwalk and lived in Bridgeport, those two cities are very different from New Haven because there is no Yale in those two cities. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that the city can have a functional and progressive relationship with Yale, I think it's better for all people. I think I would love to see, to your question, Yale students more engaged in community. I think a lot of times it has been my experience that Yale students or professors kind of engage community folks for when it's kind of event laden, right? And not in a real authentic mm -hmm. kind of relationship building mm -hmm. model. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just think that there's so much to learn between the two, kind of the town and the gown, that it, I think it's a shame that we're not fully kind of seizing the potential of, of a, a real authentic and beautiful relationship between city and school. I really, I really believe that. I know there's a lot of history. I'm not from New Haven, so I know there's a lot of history between Yale and the city that I'm kind of learning and listening to. But I think the two should learn to live together functionally and lovingly at some point, because it only makes a better place for everybody. I really believe that. I do have a, a larger relationship with the hospital. I'm, I'm a trustee at Yale New Haven mm -hmm. Hospital. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an incredible institution as well. Incredible like Yale University. And I think the hospital is also a huge engine for this, for this city and the functioning of this city. So, I don't know. I don't know. You know, there's such a long history between this city and the school right. that I almost feel disrespectful trying to answer a question around what it should be. Well, I can give you my experience. I think there are people at this university who are absolutely incredible. I have yet to meet a person or have been in contact or in relationship with a person from this university who didn't treat me respectfully and didn't treat the work that I'm doing. And the place where I do that work with a deep sense of respect and admiration. I can't say that's been the experience for other people, mm -hmm. but that has been my experience. Mm -hmm. So I'll just say that. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome, Amy. Okay. So I guess moving back to specific spaces at CONCAT. Mm -hmm. So I know Orchid Cafe, there's a monthly event called New Haven yes. Storytelling. Um, so I saw the picture of the words that say everyone has a story. So I guess what does 
this event mean to you and community building in New Haven? Mm, great question. So that Storytelling New Haven was the brainchild of a dear friend of mine, two friends of mine, Karen Du Bois Walton and her husband, Kevin Walton. And they believe, and I think they were inspired by uh, the community leadership program that was created by Bill Graustein. This the power of story. And there are so many stories in New Haven, especially in our communities, that are worthy of being heard and told. And so they came to me with the idea of this storyteller New Haven and that CONCAT being kind of a community citadel in New Hallville. Could we host this idea that Karen and Kevin had. And so I, of course, said yes. And what it's done is it has brought people from all walks of life mm. within New Haven and outside of New Haven to Orchid Cafe on the second Monday, I believe, of every month. They are at Orchid Cafe and we set up and it's about 60 to 70 people. Sometimes we don't have enough room. There are two stories that are told you know, people who, who select and say, I'll tell. And usually they're two totally opposite stories from, you know, people who I know who I never even knew that uh-huh. these things uh-huh. were part of their life and their life's narrative. But it's just a huge and incredible and powerful community building vehicle, right? Where all these people from all walks of life are at Orchid Cafe listening to two people's story and comparing those stories Mm -hmm. to their own lives. And it just allows you to know each other a little better and a little more authentically. Mm -hmm. So it's just really, it's just powerful. Are there any specific stories that stand out to you? Oh, man. Yeah. I think Bill Graustein's story was really incredible. He tells the story of his life and the story of, you know, Bill was a academic here at Yale who taught archaeology and geology. And he kind of compares the idea of finding bones to like finding oneself. It's just interesting. really interesting. And Bill's one of the most incredible human beings you will ever meet. So I think his story really stands out to me. Yeah, that was really a deep story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then earlier you mentioned Petals Market. Could you tell us more about its function mm-hmm. and the neighborhood that it yeah. resides in? So what happened was Yale University reached out to me and asked if we could meet. And Lauren Zucker called and said, hey, can I come over? We sat and talked and we had some subsequent meetings after that. And she had this idea of a collaboration between us, CONCAT and CONCORP, and Yale University, where they had this kind of 1,200-square-foot building that was just sitting there right across the street from the Yale Police Department. And they wanted to find a way to provide services to the new residential colleges because those young people, um, in order to get snacks or whatever they would need, had to kind of walk across to Broadway or other places where they could be walking right up the street. And so she wanted to see if we would take over this building where we would provide that those type of food services to the community and to those new residential colleges, those students. And so after negotiating a lease, we chose to do it. And kind of here you are, Petals Market. And it's been really successful thus far. 
it is a way also, because you talked about community, it is a way to bring Yale students, mm-hmm. Yale Police Department, and the community together at this place in this market. And so it's a, a way of using food to bring people together in, in, in this one space. And it's been really successful so far. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of the genesis of it. Yeah. So earlier, you also mentioned that you serve on various sports. Mm-hmm. So how do you see all of your roles kind of tie together yeah. in the work that you do? So let me list them. So I'm on the State Board of Ed. I chair the board of the Housing Authority here in New Haven. I'm on the board of New Haven Bank and a trustee at Yale New Haven Hospital. Strategically, I say yes to those board overtures because those are the things I feel that have confounded the black community for decades now, right? Issues of health, issues of economics, issues of housing. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to be on these boards to be able to understand and learn in a deep way how these institutions function so I can carry that information back to the community or in our work and be more effective. Right? And so, and, and I missed education. That's why um, I said yes to those boards. And now I um, chairing a board called the Partnership for Connecticut, mm-hmm. uh, which is a partnership, one with Dalio Philanthropies, the other with the state of Connecticut, to do two things. One, to address disengaged, disconnected youth in Connecticut, and also inspire social entrepreneurship and community enterprises and kind of create microfinance frameworks in communities of poverty in Connecticut. And I said yes to that, one, because I think it's an incredible mission and it speaks to addressing poverty readily. Secondly, it's philanthropy. And I think there needs to be more people of color, especially black people in philanthropic institutions. So, you know, my saying yes, one is out of duty. Mm-hmm. Two is to, to learn and bring those learnings to the community. So speaking of learning, okay. um, what are the most important things you think you've learned throughout your career? That I learned about myself or just learning in, in general? Both. Both. Gotcha. I think my biggest lesson, and I, I say this um, not as often as I used to, that I've been very blessed to, to be successful, right? to experience some success. But the more success I experience, the more evil I see, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of not only moving up the ladder, but moving into rooms that not only, you know, did they open a door, I didn't even know there was a door there. Mm-hmm. And sitting in those rooms allows me to see a lot of things that I didn't want to see, right? Or hear what I didn't want to hear because it just reaffirmed what I thought. So I'll say that also, that's a huge learning, but I readily go into those, those rooms. I learned that I'm probably more visionary than I gave myself credit for. I didn't know it was a thing, right? I, like, I could see something and kind of kind of go back and put that, the thing that I see together. I learned that the only way to solve the issues of the world is to have a deep and abiding love with humanity, no matter the race, no matter the culture, that you have to love people more than they hate you. 
and I learned how to fail. Fail early and often. I fail quite a bit, but there's something very powerful in failing, you know. So, so those are the kind of key learnings. They're, they're very broad, but they're, they're learnings nonetheless. Right, they're important. Yeah. yeah. So moving from the past and into the future, mm -hmm. um, what do you hope to see in New Haven and in Connecticut in the future? I hope to see people who have the means to address poverty have the courage to do so. I gather, and I may be wrong, that I think people want to address poverty, those who have the means, but they don't want to be around poor people while they do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that people don't want to be around poor people because being in proximity to that suffering makes them self-reflect on how they got over. I want to see people courageously living out their lives in an environment for those folks to do that. And that has to be an environment of empathy, environment of courage, environment of, of love, and no fear. Right. I think that I think people walk in this world uh, definitely afraid. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to see that diminished to it or eradicated. And I want to see ultimately the vitality of the young people be joined with the wisdom of the elders. Right? I think right now older people are afraid of, of young people. I do. And they are not enjoying the fruits of, of each other's labors, right? I think if our young people can sit with the wisdom of our older people, I think this world would, would take a different direction. I think there are so many stories, powerful stories to be told about what not to do, you know, that aren't told. Mm -hmm. Because there's no connection between the young and the old. I think what makes a place like Yale University so powerful, that every day you are walking in the wisdom of people who were 300, 400 years ago. Right? And there's an expectation that they set while you walk in these halls that not only do you know in word, but you feel. You know? And I think if that could be a model in our communities... That would be very powerful, you know? There's an incredible history here. And in that history, there's an expectation. And you walk in it every day, you can feel it. You are connected to the past in a deep way as you chart the future. So I think if our communities could experience that, it would be different here. From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. Follow Eric and Concat's work on Twitter and Instagram at Concat underscore. This episode was produced by Amy Zhang, Thomas Hagen, and myself, Erwin Lee. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Mono, Jeremy Oldfield, Noah Macy, and Mark Bomford. Special thanks to Pearson College and the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration for supporting Eric's visit. As always, we'll see you in two weeks.